Well, it looks like things are in a full swing as we get ready for all the activities that will occur this summer with Czech and OCE and Kazakhstan team <clears throat> feverishly preparing for the work that is ahead of us. Uh, just to share about Dale and Joan with you, I had an opportunity to talk with them this past week twice um, just to kind of touch base on our, our time together uh, next week. Uh, I called them up. I talked to Dale. We sent them off to Czech Republic, if you remember, about seven weeks ago. I talked to Dale, and, um, you know, the way guys talk and the way women talk, it's different. You know, I was talking to Dale, and how are things going? Going well. We're hanging in there. Things are tough. Things are challenging, but we're holding our own. We're looking forward to meeting with you guys, and can't wait till we uh, see you face-to-face. That's great, Dale. You know, hang in there. We'll be there. You know, reinforcements are coming. Uh, we're praying for you, and we'll see you soon. And then I gave the phone to Serene so that she might talk to Joan, and they had a conversation, and um, I asked Serene if I could share that conversation with all of you, and she was about 50-50, and, and so I, I didn't know if I could share or not, so I asked um, Joan's sister, Julie, and I got permission from her, so I'll share it with all of you <laughs> on behalf of Joan. Joan was telling Serene that it's tough, it's very difficult. They keenly sense um, their loneliness, isolation, uh, because of the cultural differences, language differences, but mostly uh, spiritual separation. Uh, cr- Christians are definitely a minority there, and um, they've sensed just uh, they miss the church, they miss all of you, they miss uh, worship together. And uh, Joan was crying. You know, Dale didn't cry, but. You know, Joan was crying, sharing, sharing with Serene and sharing with us um, the difficulty of, of life in the, in the field. And the, the mission high is gone, the reality has set in. And that's, that's so important. I share this because it's so important for us to hear this. We go to short-term missions and we spend two, two or three weeks overseas and it's just joy and fun and good times and evangelism and and fellowship, we come back and we think, well, I could do that. That's not so hard. Well, I could see myself doing uh, missions work. And yet, going there for the long haul, for the long term, it is quite different. They're telling us um, the, the initial high, the honeymoon stage is already over. And uh, they're facing challenges. But all, all the more, they're resolved to continue in serving the Lord. Uh, it's, they were saying how it's been good for their marriage good for their communication, their mutual support and prayer, prayers together. And um, they're, they're just uh, feverishly, they're, really, they're committing themselves all the more to evangelize the lost and serve the, serve the church there in Kladno. I shared all of this with you so that you might continue to pray for them. It's so easy, isn't it, to forget that our our brother and sister in Christ, members of our family are overseas in the front lines laboring for the gospel. It's so easy, isn't it, just to get caught up in our own lives, distractions of everyday living, and forget there's a spiritual battle that is being waged uh, throughout the world. Um, just having our missionaries overseas, and the Smiths, the Coils, uh, the Mukashevs, the Kernels, and the Shims, Knowing, knowing that they're out there praying for them, may it spur us on to fight the good fight here at home. 
or you might have you might ask why are Joan and Dale ultimately why are they there um, what is their motivation there is a sense where there's a self-centered motivation for them going to missions for all of all of you that are evangelizing today to your neighbors, your family members, to friends. There is a self-centered motivation undergirding your evangelism. With the teams that are going out this summer as well, what is that? It, it is the motivation of joy. It is the motivation of rejoicing, of being satisfied in God. It is one of the highest joys of the Christian faith. Um, to share the gospel, to have someone come come to a knowledge of Christ and trust in Christ and have their sins forgiven, that is indeed one of the highest joys a Christian can experience. That is what is talked about here in Luke 15, the joy of those of seeing people come to the Lord. I'm talking not about the temporal happiness that is based on fleeting pleasures of this world, you know, happiness that is based on entertainment, on food, on material possessions. I hope that we're old enough, to, old enough now to realize that all those things are indeed fleeting. They're momentary. They're passing away. That the sustaining true joy lies only with Christ. Several weeks ago, we studied John 16.24 and Christ talked about that joy. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Christ, until now, you have never prayed in my name. Well, pray in my name and I will give to you and your joy will be complete. Now, what ought we pray for? What ought to be the object, the focus of our petitions before God? Ought we now, after the death and resurrection of Christ, ask God for a new car? Ought we ask God for uh, temporal things like material possessions or, or money or food or, or we're lonely or we're discontent or we don't have this, we don't have that? Ought we now pray for material things? Does that, did that give us joy? Would that complete our joy? No, I believe what Christ is saying is until now, you have not prayed for the lost in my name. Ask, and you'll receive. And your joy will be complete. The joy of, that, that is had by those who, who see people come to Christ, you will receive it, you will have that joy. That is being talked about again in, in Luke 15. It might uh, have escaped you in a cursory reading of this chapter. But if you look closely, you will discover that the, the undergirding theme, the thread of this whole chapter, is the idea of joy. Verses 5-7. through seven, Three times uh, points to this idea of joy. This guy, shepherd, lost, loses his sheep. He goes out and he finds it. And he rejoices. With joy, he puts it on his shoulders and brings the sheep back. And then he calls his friends, Rejoice with me! For I found my sheep that was lost. And then Christ says, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who do not have any need for repentance. There is greater joy in heaven when someone comes to Christ. Verses 9 through 10, two more times, joy over a lost coin. 
The woman rejoices because she has found it. I experienced this recently. I think three Sundays ago, I lost my wallet. Uh, Sunday is a busy day and um, playing sports afterwards. I put my wallet somewhere. I could not for the life of me remember where I put it. Monday morning, I wake up. I look at my bag. It's not there. I look at my gym bag. It's not there. I look at my clothes. It's not there. I call a few of the pastors who are there. They see my wallet. Talk to my wife. And just looked all over the house, could not find it. Well, next day, by God's grace, it was in the back pocket of my um, dress pants. And I found it, and I was full of joy. I was. I called, I called Jason up. I found my wallet, Jason. I, Don't worry, brother. I know you're praying for me. But I found it. I told my wife, we're rejoicing together. Right? And Christ is saying, if you rejoice over a wallet, if you rejoice over a lost coin, silver coin, how much more joy ought you have over a soul that was lost and is now found? And then the final joy is the actual parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. When he comes back, the father celebrates. He throws a party, a party of all parties. They have a, a special cow. They fatten up for slaughter, for special occasions. Right? They feed this cow for one reason only. When there's a special reason for celebration, until that time, the cow is just gaining weight. And the father says, bring that cow. Right? It's time to celebrate and rejoice because the son that was lost is now found. You know, I've said this several times when people came to Christ and asked Christ, what is the kingdom of heaven like? What is the kingdom of God like? And he used many analogies, many metaphors to describe the kingdom of God, this, this great spiritual truth to explain to simple people. And he said, the kingdom of God is like a seed scattered in the field. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into a biggest tree. The kingdom of God is like a net that is thrown, thrown out into the sea and it catches all these different kinds of fish. My favorite analogy is when Christ said, the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet. It is a huge party. It is when God the Father sees His only Son be wed to the church, the pure bride. And so heaven is like one great celebration, one great party thrown by God the Father, and there will be much rejoicing, much joy in the kingdom of heaven. And so that is the theme of Luke 15, of joy. Now, why did Christ give these three parables? You'd be surprised. The reason behind Christ giving these three parables is because in the audience, people that were gathered there, there were men, there were several people. There was a great a number of people who lacked joy, who were not joyful. In fact, they were angry. They were grumbling. They were discontent. They were huffing and puffing, right? Not too loud for it to be distracting, but loud enough so that their displeasure is made known. And that is the reason why Christ gave these three parables. Now, before we go on, that's the contrast here. The abundance of joy that God has and the loss being found contrasted with the utter absence of joy in the Pharisees. God is full of joy. The Pharisees have no joy. 
uh, one point of application, one maybe a, a point to think about. Are you a Pharisee? Do you have a Pharisaic mindset? Right, don't look at your legalism. Don't consider whether you're, you elevate traditions of man or culture of this world and the equal level or higher level than the scriptures. Do not look at whether you are lording over others and abusing your authority. Do not look at whether you love the seed of uh, esteem, of, 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 of preeminence, and, and you love to be first. Before you look at those marks of Phariseeism, consider whether you have joy or not at seeing others come to Christ. And how do you know? Now, we all gravitate towards our joy. We all do. Right? If something gives you joy, you just gravitate towards it. doesn't matter, right? I mean, if you enjoy, you know, I, mean, I, I don't have illustrations here. If, you know, I enjoy basketball. Man, and there was a time where it was raining and then we played ball. Like Rex and I, several guys, it was raining, we played ball. You know, I've driven an hour and a half just to play basketball. Uh, one time, I had a bad back, and I played basketball. I don't like running, so if it's kind of too cold, I won't run, right? If I have a little bit of arthritic pain in my pinky, uh, I can't run today, right? But if, right, So we all gravitate towards our joy. So if you have joy over the loss coming to Christ, you would gravitate towards evangelism. Your life would be all about Find that lost sheep. Find that lost coin. Find that lost, those who are lost, and bringing them to Christ. Now, if your joy is somewhere else, then your heart will not gravitate towards evangelism. Instead, you will be repelled towards evangelism. Well, that's the Pharisees. You could tell where their hearts are because their hearts are anything but full of joy. Now, let's go to Luke 15 would like to deal with the entire chapter, verses 1 through 32. Um, let's go to the setting. This helps us to understand fully uh, the, the gravity, the emphasis of Christ as He gives these parables. The setting is important. Verse, verse 1, notice the kinds of men and women who are being drawn to Christ. And I love this. Verse 1, the tax collectors and you know, Luke doesn't want to waste words. Sinners, right? It's a generic term for all those who are considered irreligious. Those who are promiscuous, immoral, drunkards, gamblers, right? Liars, thieves, people of the world, foul-mouthed, prideful, boastful, violent men and women, sinners, were all drawing near to Jesus Christ. Consider the kinds of people, like moths to a flame, that were drawn to Christ. Right? Instead of being repelled by Christ's uh, teachings and His call to discipleship, no, the people of the world, they sensed His love and compassion. They sensed His integrity, His sincerity, His genuineness, His whole open heart. So instead of being repelled from Christ, they were drawn towards Him. And so he was often surrounded by prostitutes. Isn't that amazing? He was often surrounded by drunkards and gamblers and foul-mouthed men and women. So much so that the Pharisees gave him a term. They gave him a label. They gave him a nickname. Jesus, 
the friend of sinners, Christ. Right? That was his nick. That was his moniker because it was such a common sight for Christ to have such people surrounding him. And consider the response of the religious leaders, of the religious people. Verse two: the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled because they would never do that. They would never associate with prostitutes. Right? They're dirty. They're immoral. They were uh, enemies of God. They would never stoop so low to dine with tax collectors, those who betrayed the nation of Israel. They would sell their moms, right, for a day's wages. Right? I mean, these guys were corrupt. These guys were hypocrites. These guys were just, uh, just, just awful. And, and so they, they grumbled when they saw the Lord associate with them. And then they said, this man receives sinners. And he eats with them. And this happened again and again in the Gospel of Luke. Luke describes this pattern again and again. Uh, in Luke seven thirty-seven through 50. Let me just uh, summarize this chapter. Uh, they're they're uh, gathered at a Pharisee's house. And they're eating. And a woman who had lived a sinful life. Right? So she's a prostitute. Comes to Christ. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She was crying at Christ. And then she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped his feet with her hair. She has long hair. She used her hair to wipe his feet. And she poured her perfume on Jesus' feet. Now Pharisees, seeing this picture of this woman repenting of her sins, coming to Christ, what is their response? They grumble. They begin to complain. And they say to one another, This man is not a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. They would say, I would never let her touch me. I'm holy. I'm pure. I'm a righteous man. I would never let her in my house, let alone have her touch my feet. And Christ is aghast. Christ is indignant. And how does he approach this? He gives a parable. He says, Simon, Peter, I have a question to ask you. Right? Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One man owed 500 denarii, another man 50. The money lender canceled their debts because both men were not able to repay. Jesus said, which of them will love the money lender more? But Peter got it right. Right, praise, good job, Peter. Peter said, "Let me think about this." Right, one guy owes five hundred denarii, one guy owes fifty. Their debts are canceled. You know, Lord, I think the guy who had five hundred denarii canceled, he would love the moneylender more because he had greater debt, and for that to be forgiven, he would have greater love, greater gratitude. And Jesus said, "You've spoken wisely." Right. That is this woman, right? That is why um, she is serving me in this way. He says, I tell you the truth. Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And he's talking about the Pharisees. He says they, were, they saw themselves as so righteous, so pure and holy, that they didn't have any sins to be forgiven for. They didn't need Christ. I'm good. I'm moral. I'm righteous. So why should I love Christ? Because he hasn't done anything for me. Therefore, they have no love for Christ. 
On the, on the contrary, the sinful woman had a lot to love Christ for because her many sins have been forgiven. Right. So, here, here they are again in Luke 15. Our Lord is uh, rebuking the Pharisees with these three parables because of their lack of joy. And their lack of joy condemns them, indicts them, and testifies against them for their lack of joy exposes their sinful motivation, exposes that, that all their religious rituals, all their outward uh, moral practices are motivated by spiritual pride and vain glory. So it, these parables are directed towards them. Let's go through these three parables, parables one by one. The first parable is the lost sheep. Verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost, just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The picture here is of a shepherd who is trying to account for all his sheep and he discovers one's missing. And because he's a good shepherd, he goes after the one that is lost. He notes that any shepherd really would do what he's about to describe. And after a diligent search, he finds that lost sheep. And then he rejoices, putting it tenderly on his shoulders, carrying it back to the fold. And he rejoices. The idea is, the Pharisees, the scribes, why don't you do the same? Don't, don't you rejoice over a, a lost animal that is found. Right? Similarly, all heaven rejoices. Each person here, each prostitute, each tax collector, there is joy in heaven because they are coming to God. Why is there such lack of joy in your hearts? Then he goes to the second parable. A consider a woman who has ten silver coins and she loses one. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The continuation. That same idea. A silver coin was equal to one day's wages. Depending on your income, it's about $10 to 200 Right? So here's this woman, she loses a day's wages worth uh, in her home, and she scours the place to look for that lost coin. And when she finds it, she is full of joy. Once again, Christ says, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God, verse 10, over one sinner who repents. The idea of emphasizing a single sinner, single person coming to Christ, there is such joy. They both teach the same and simple truth. There is great joy in heaven when the lost, when a single lost person comes to Christ. 
these two parables set the foundation for the third parable. Really, you have to study 15 in, in, a, in a full uh, set because those two parables set the plate, sets the foundation for the third. The third parable is the culminating parable. It's the capstone parable. The parable of, I would say, the lost sons. The parable of the lost sons. If you look at the last parable, you will know, you might be surprised to hear this, that there are three characters. A certain man had two sons. Right? So there are three characters. And the main character of this parable is not the father, because of the context. It's not the prodigal son. The main character is the third son. Third character. Second son, the older son. He is the main character because all these parables were prompted because of the Pharisees. They're directed at the scribes and therefore, because they are like the older son, he is the main character of this passage. Let's go through uh, these characters one by one, starting from verse 11. Simple story, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of two brothers approaches his father, not with a request, but with a demand. Verse 12. It's, uh, give me my share. It's not a petition, it's a demand. Give me my half of my inheritance. Now, it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, there's a geographical gap. This is ancient Near East, this is Jerusalem. We're in Southern California. There is a time gap of over 2,000 years, the cultural gap. But in terms of giving up inheritance, there's a direct correlation between Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and today. We get our inheritance after our parents pass away. Right? That's what happens in America. happens all over the world. This son... Doesn't want to wait. He can't wait. He goes to his dad, saying, Well, dad, when you pass away, I'm going to get 50. Right? You have two sons, that's it. So, just give it to me now. Right? You know, you're a pretty healthy guy. You might, you know, stick around for a while. So, I can't wait that long. I've got life to live. Give me my share now. What a, what a disrespectful, dishonorable thing. Um, what presumption, but the father graciously grants the son's request and gives him half of his inheritance. Shortly thereafter, the son leaves his father, his family, his country, and departs to a distant country. And 13b, there, what does he do? He squanders his property in reckless living. Verse 13, he squanders his wealth in wild living. He wastes it. He throws it away. Hence the popularized term as the prodigal son. Recklessly wasteful. He's prodigal. He's marked by rash extravagance. Led a prodigal life. A recklessly extravagant consumer is someone who, is a, who lives a prodigal life. The money eventually runs out. At the same time, verse 14, a famine falls upon that land, bringing this young man to desperate straits. He begins to be in need. 
His money runs out, so all his friends are gone. Left to himself, he is uh, destitute. So he is forced to hire himself out as a slave to a Gentile. And the, the, the worst disgrace is the kind of job that he is given to do. The unpleasant task of taking care of pigs. That was his job. For a Jew, it was doubly shameful because they consider that pigs uh, unkosher animals, particularly dirty animals. So it was a detestable thing, an unthinkable thing. And the listeners were, were entranced to think that the son would result, it would, it thought as poetic justice that he would end up feeding pigs. And yet, because of the famine and his poverty, he saw the food that the pigs were eating, and he craved it, and he wanted it. He thought the pigs were taking uh, a better care of than, than himself. Verse 16, He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. That was the lowest of lows. When he craved the food of pigs, he hit rock bottom. And then this is when it changes. It was in this state that the young man came to his senses. He recognized, wait a minute, my father has slaves that live better than this. My father's slaves eat three square meals, have a roof over their heads, and they don't crave the food of animals. What am I doing here? I'm starving to death. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven, sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. I realize now what, I, what I've done was, was, was unacceptable. I, I am unworthy, therefore, to be called your son. I've lost that right and privilege. So instead, Father, will you hire me as one of your slaves? Our Lord, um, given this parable, does not minimize the sin of this young man. He does not condone it or brush it aside. He did never minimize sin. Our Lord... Uh, highlighted his sins, but also at the same time highlighted his repentance. Yes, what he did was sinful. But look at what he did. He repented of his sins and came back to the Father. Repentance is seeing one's actions as sinful first in the sight of God and then in the sight of man. And this is exactly what this young man did. I have sinned against heaven sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. And he made decisions. He turned around. He got up and he walked towards his father, showing that repentance is a decision, the change, change of mind that results in action. He does not go back claiming any of his rights, asserting, not asserting any of his privileges. No, he only pleads for mercy. There are no demands and so this young man begins his journey home and then brings us the second character, the father. Right. 
The father is here longing for the return of his son. The father was gracious, giving his son what he had asked for. He allowed the son to go his own way. He could have prevented it. He could have locked him up and beat some sense into him. He could have gotten the older son and had him knock some sense into him. He doesn't do that. He didn't do that. He allowed him to go. He could have refused to give him the inheritance, but he didn't. But as the son went off, the heart of the father never forgot the wayward son, never disowned him. All the while he was gone, he was waiting and watching. So it is no accident that the father, verse 20, saw the son coming from a long way off. So he was far, far off. The father saw his son. There is a great deal in that word, saw, in verse 20. He saw who it was. He saw where he had come from. He saw his tattered clothes. He saw the filth upon his hands and his feet. He saw the rags. And then he saw his penitent look. He saw what he had been and what he had become. When he was a great way off, his father saw him, and it was not with icy eyes that the father looked on his returning son. No, he saw his son with warm eyes, loving eyes, compassionate eyes. Love leaped in his heart as he saw his son, and he had nothing but love for him. No anger in his heart toward his son. Spurgeon said this, I do not know that the prodigal saw his father, but his father saw him. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim compared with the eyes of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we scarcely limp. And if we are limping towards Him, He will run towards us. These kisses were given in a hurry. He did not delay a moment. For though He was out of breath, He was not out of love. End quote. I love that. The eyes of mercy are quicker and the eyes of repentance, the father saw him, felt compassion for him, and verse 20, here is something incredible, we read that the father ran. He ran. He did not wait for his son to come to him. Right? I'm going to make him eat his words. I'm going to make him I suffer. I'm going to hear what he has to say. I want to see him grovel. I want to ask, see him get on his knees and beg for mercy. And then maybe I'll have mercy upon him. That wasn't the father's response. As soon as he saw him, he ran to him. He ran to meet his son. And then what did he do? If we had read that the father slapped him, the father punched him, The father wrung his neck. You foolish son. You idiot. I gave my life. I worked. I toiled for that money. 
I gave my life to provide that, that, this life for you and your brother. And you wasted away, you squandered away in a short amount of time. What a fool! We would not be surprised. Some parents here would think, he deserves it. Man, if my son did that to me, if he had so disrespected me, wasted my hard-earned money, I would never forgive him. The son deserves, at the very least, a big rebuke. But no matter what we think, the Bible is clear, and Christ's parable is clear. He embraced him and kissed him. Kissed him over and over again. Kissed him eagerly, kissed him much. Spurgeon says again, quote, The great and amazing love of God towards penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a sinner kissing him. What a wonderful picture. Can you conceive it? I do not think you can. But if you cannot imagine it, I hope that you will realize it. When God's arm is about our neck and his lips are on our cheek kissing us much, then we understand more than preachers or books can ever tell of His great and amazing love. End quote. The Father embraces the Son, kisses Him, and immediately restores Him back as His Son. The Son begins to say, Father, I, He had the speech prepared, long drawn out apology Plea for forgiveness, confession of sin. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father does not even listen to him. Son, you came back. You came to your senses. You're repentant. He turns to his servants, verse 22. Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his head, signifying that he is my child. Put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is a perfect picture of God's love towards us. God's love towards you, you who repent, you who come to your senses, living a life of waste, living a life for sin, in sin, for sin, for self-pleasure. You come to your senses and you turn towards Him. This is the Father's response. How greatly He loves you. There is no measuring the love that He has towards you. He has loved you before the foundation of the world, and He will love you when time shall be no more. Oh, the immeasurable love of God to sinners who deserve His wrath and yet receive His mercy. We can doubt a lot of things, but we can never doubt the love of God He has for sinners. The Father commands, that there be a great celebration. What a great parable. The joy of the Father. We are not done with the parable. The main character is coming to the scene. Until now, he was obscured. He was not central. 
now he comes to the scene. The older brother here in the parable represents the Pharisees and scribes who grumbled at Jesus' reception of sinners. Notice that the older brother is out in the fields working when the younger brother returns. Verse 25, he does not know that the younger brother has returned until he comes back and hears from the servants that he has returned. He learns that the father has received him and that a celebration has been called. And when he heard that the fattened calf, maybe the calf that he was feeding, was killed, that was the last straw. The older brother, he became angry and he refused to go in to celebrate the return of his younger brother. When the father came out to his older son to appeal to him, the older son refused. The words of the older son are key to understanding his desires, his attitudes. Like in verse 29, this is his um, a protest against his father. Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. First complaint is, I have served you, but you have given me nothing. Showing that the motivation for his service was for himself. He wasn't serving his father because he loved the father. But really, he was serving because he wanted something back in return. He was serving for our inheritance. You have, second complaint is that you have given your other son a banquet when all he did was sin. And of course, that's, that's a declaration that is unfair. It is unjust. Right? You know, he sinned, he gets a banquet. I'm obedient and I don't get anything. It's not fair. He sees, himself, he sees himself wrongly. He sees himself as righteous and just. And that's unfair. I should be getting the party and he should be left out. Just like the Pharisees, wrong doctrine. Right? No, they're both lost. They both strayed away from the father. The younger son strayed physically. The older son left the father spiritually in his heart. They both sinned against God against the Father and against God. It's that uh, Rabbi Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, everyone who b- bought that book and read it, the presumption is, I'm a good person, right? Why doesn't good things happen to me? And why my neighbor, he's not a good person, right? My brother, my sister, my cousin, he's not a good person. Why does good things, why did that good thing happen to him and not to me? Everyone who bought, bought that book and read it, presumption is, I'm good, I deserve good things. And that's the presumption of the Pharisees, and that's the presumption of this older son. And the father said, no, both of you have sinned. And the final one clinches it. I have never neglected a command of yours, which is entirely false. We know that's not true because he's neglecting a command of his father right now. His father says, come in and celebrate. He says, no, I've never disobeyed your command. You just... You're disobeying me now. You're dishonoring me now. Disrespecting me now. It's a wrong view of himself. And like the Pharisees as well, they saw themselves as righteous, as moral, as pure, as deserving God's favor instead of the tax collectors and sinners who were gathered by him. 
The sins of these two sons are very different in their outward manifestations, but inwardly they had the same roots. Again, the younger son sinned by leaving with his feet. The older son sinned by leaving in his heart. We tend to see sin and sinners by merely external standards and criteria. We judge people by their behaviors, their outward manners. Well, that's not how God sees people. Thomas Watson calls God the heart searcher. God looks the heart. And accordingly, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Our Lord, by this last parable, indicts the Pharisees and re-exposes their heart that they don't love the Father, they don't love truth, they don't love Christ because of their utter lack of joy in seeing sinners repent and turn towards Him. Which son are you? Final thoughts. Who do you identify with? Are you the prodigal son? Living to waste your life? And Marcus said this, eating sand and pretending that it's good. Eating food given to pigs and you're deceiving yourself. This is, this is good. This is satisfying. This is, excuse me, joy. Will you come to your senses today and, real, and, tell, and be honest? What am I doing here? What am I eating? What am I living for? What, 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 is, what is my pursuit in life? Will you come to your senses because the Father is waiting, He's watching? As soon as you come to your senses and turn towards Him, He will run to you. He will run to you not in anger and wrath, not in judgment, but in love and compassion to adopt you as His child. Or are you the second son? No joy. No joy. And the younger son coming to, to the father. Are you like the older son where you have no joy of seeing the laws come to Christ? Let's look at your life. What are you consumed with? What is the consuming thing in your life? Is it uh, entertainment? Is it friends? Is it material possessions? Is it marriage? Is it children? Is it a house? Is it a status? If those things, as a Christian, if those things are the pursuits and passions of your life, then that is your joy. And that means you have no joy. Outwardly, you might, you know, feign joy at people coming to Christ, but really, your joy is in this world. Are you the older son? Why is that you don't have joy? It's because you see yourself wrongly. You see yourself as a moral person, as a good person, someone who never sins, someone who never strayed away from God. Yeah, these sinners. Yeah, that guy, man, he was like, I can't believe the sins he committed. That's a good thing he's a Christian now, but wow, you got that girl, and she did all these worst things. Well, I grew up in the church. You know, I was always, you know, moral and obedient to my parents, and I was always good. You know, praise God, I never strayed so far. That's a false view of yourself. Seeing sin as mere outward behavior, 
rather than what God sees in your heart. Are you the old, younger son? Finally, um, what ought to motivate us? Um, you know, in our lives, it's the joy of the Father. There's more joy in heaven when a sinner repents than the 99 righteous. There's more joy before the angels when a sinner repents. And as a lost son, there is great joy in the Father's heart when they come to Him. You know, why? Why did Dale and Joe go to missions? It's for joy. Why do you and I commit ourselves to ministry, commit ourselves to praying for the lost and sharing the gospel? It's not because you have to. It's not because of a title, you're a leader in the church. It must not be. It must not be because people are watching you. That's, that's not right. Our, our motivation is, is self-serving. It's self-centered in a sense. It's for our own joy that we would experience the joy of the Father as we proclaim the gospel to the lost and as people come to Him. Well, we will see you in four weeks. And as we come together, by that time, the OC team would have returned. Kazakhstan team would have returned. And Czech team would have returned. At that time, we will rejoice together. That may, may joy be ours as we praise God for His faithfulness together as a body of believers. Father, we do thank You and praise You. Father, we thank You for watching for us, waiting for us, each of us, when we turn to You. Oh God, we're so thankful that You came to us, not in anger and wrath. Though we deserved it, Lord, You gave us mercy and grace, love and compassion. You embraced us. You forgave us of all our sins. Though You were well within Your rights to recount all the things that we had done to dishonor you, disrespect you, Lord, you wiped the slate clean. As far as east as to the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. So, God, we just come before you to worship and praise you, God. And may we never forget the love of God that is demonstrated to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And, oh, God, we pray that we would grow a distaste for things in this world. Things that give us, in a sense, happiness when we're young or when we're not Christians. Now as we grow in Christ, may our appetites be changed. May our taste buds ah, be, be changed so that we will lose taste for things, these things in the world. They will no longer give us any kind of joy or happiness. Instead, we would find, only, we find joy only in the joy that you have, and the joy of people coming to Christ. May that joy be so great in our hearts, it would cause us to act, cause us to pray, cause us to be uh, earnest uh, ones, searching, uh, scouring the world to bring back your people to yourself. Pray these things in Jesus' name.